Welcome to Wandering Blurds, coming to you from the city that never sleeps in the deep, deep, deep B-K-L-Y-N, Brooklyn. Brought to you by the Gifted Sounds Network, Wandering Blurds, a show that lets those on the go know just where to go when they wander the big blue marble. I'm Mickey T. And I'm Mickey B. This week, we're wandering to beautiful Battle Creek, hidden gem of Michigan, respite for freedom seekers, serial capital of the world. Battle Creek, the birthplace of the seventh Day Adventist Church, beautiful, bountiful Battle Creek. So, would you like to take a guess about how Battle Creek got its name, Miki? Sure. Uh, okay. I'm assuming that it has to do with the battle that took place by a creek. You know what? Most people would assume that. That's a really safe assumption. However, it has to do with... Hungry Potawatomi Indians and a few government surveyors. On March 14, 1824, two Potawatomi men approached a party of federal surveyors led by Colonel John Mullet. Under the terms of a treaty the Potawatomi people signed with the federal government in 1820, they were promised a delivery of provisions. Now, that delivery was late. The Potawatomis were hungry, so they asked the survey party. Where's the food you promised us? Colonel Mullet and one of his surveyors told the men that they didn't have their food, and they sent the hungry Potawatomis away. The men left, but that night they came back to relieve the survey party of uh, some burdensome provisions that they had in their possession. (laughs) (laughs) And the surveyor wakes up. In the ensuing skirmish, one of the Potawatomi men was shot and seriously wounded. Now, he didn't die, but the next day, the survey party, they suspected that there was going to be problems, the fallout from that, and they fell back to Detroit, which you would say, okay, how far is Detroit? Not too far. Wrong. It wasn't close. It was 123 miles away. And the surveyors who returned to the area remembered that incident where the Potawatomi man was shot, and after that skirmish, they called that village and the river ran next to it, Battle Creek. And if you're wondering whatever happened to the descendants of those Potawatomi Indians and the Ottawas who once lived in the Battle Creek area, they now reside on the Pine Creek Reservation. Okay. Yeah. Kind of deep, kind of sad. Yeah. It's like you were hungry. Guess what? We're taking your land. Yeah. So, thoughts on that? Um, I mean, so, like, I'm not totally wrong. <laughs> I mean, there was a battle. Um, yeah. Small skirmish. By a river. But still, that sounds like so many different stories about the origins of the different states. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So, essentially, this, there were three major factors that were pivotal to the development of Battle Creek, Michigan. Rivers, railroads, and revelations. Battle Creek and the Kalamazoo Rivers created an outwash plain as well as a power source for mills. You had mill pond businesses like flour, grain, knitting mills, and the Erie Canal was used to transport goods and people in and out of Battle Creek, Michigan, via the Michigan Central and Grand Trunk Railroads. 
And they connected the city to the city of uh, Chicago, Canada, and all points west. It created like a, a thriving commercial center, and it played a critical role as a stop on the Quaker route of the Underground Railroad, making it a lifeline for freedom seekers during the antebellum era. And so Battle Creek owes its initial population boom to religious revelation, um, both from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and Quakers. But we're going to get more into the Quaker contribution in part two of this episode. The first group that had revelations that grew, you know, led to the the growth of Battle Creek were the Seventh-day Adventist. Now, they started arriving in Battle Creek in 1852. So what do you, do you know anything about the Seventh-day Adventist Church? I know that they're really devout. They are... Um, they're pretty diverse. Very. Uh, I know that a lot of Caribbean Americans or people of Caribbean descent are Seventh-day Adventists, just from what I've seen in New York City and different neighborhoods. And it seems like the the women are treated way differently, like they're very um, conservative, and I assume they're not allowed to wear pants even. Um, their dress is, is pretty much conservative, and you're right. It's a, a very uh, conservative sect of Christianity. However, it grew out of a progressive uh, doomsday um, sect of, of Christianity out of upstate New York. <laughs> a doomsday yes. group? Yes. I like a, fra- a, fra- a faction. Yes. Uh, so, like, it started... Um, one of the founders was a lady named Ellen White and her husband. And they were both from upstate New York, which is where the movement started. And in 1863, the founder, Ellen, started receiving visions that the world would end. So the first Seventh-day Adventist started arriving in Battle Creek, Michigan, in about 1852. And they came from upstate New York, which is the birthplace of a lot of progressive spiritual and religious movement. Ellen White, is, who was one of the three founders, and her husband um, moved there, and she had started receiving visions. And those visions would launch Battle Creek into the future of American health and wellness here. Um, so it's really kind of interesting how it all started with her religious revelations. Um, Ellen's vision was that the body was a temple, and that it should be maintained in pristine condition through vegetarianism, exercise, and rigorous hydrotherapy, and that the body should be maintained in preparation for the second coming of Christ, which was at hand. The Seventh-day Adventists got it wrong three times before they stopped saying that Christ was coming on a certain date. But Ellen's revelations were published in testimonies for the church, which grew from 16 pages to 19 volumes. Um, They're still a cornerstone of the Seventh-day Adventist doctrine, and Ellen had nearly 2,000 revelations from the ages of 17 to 70. So she was seeing things a lot and talking about the things that she saw. But the biggest one, the one that had the biggest impact for Battle Creek was her Christmas 1865 vision, which led to the establishment of the Western Health Reform Institute, which came to be known as the Battle Creek Sanitarium. 
1866, Ellen White and her husband, Reverend James White, founded the Western Health Reform Institute, which was our first stop in Battle Creek. If you've ever eaten a bowl of cereal or yogurt, granola or graham crackers, if you've ever had a colonic or used a loofah, if you've ever, if you're an American male who's not Jewish and you're circumcised, or if you've used a tent system or sunbathed or ridden an electrical bull, one of those electronic bucking bulls, or used a rowing machine, (laughs) then you have personally been touched by the influence of the Western Health Reform Institute and its most popular um, director, J. Harvey Kellogg. Oh, J. Harvey Kellogg, like of the Kellogg Cereal Company? Yes. Was a director of the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Yes. In fact, um, he is the most notable uh, director of the Western Health Reform Institute, which he renamed the Battle Creek Sanitarium under his tenure there. Um, in fact, he he actually um, coined the term sanitarium. He used the word sanatorium, um, which isn't santorum. But his sanatorium was where you would have soldiers come and convalesce. And he took the word sanitary and stuck it together and and called it a sanitarium. Okay. Yes. Um, And the Battle Creek Sanitarium is in the center of town. Um, It looms large. It is larger than almost all the other buildings, City Hall. Um, It's megalithic. Is it still open? It is. It is now a federal building. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's its third incarnation. So you're probably wondering, what is the big deal about the sand? Like, why? Um, well, just from what you told me, it, it sounds like there were a lot of inventions that came yes. out of there. And a lot of breakthroughs and healthcare and medical technology, um, other kinds of, um, I guess, medical treatments and everyday items that we use have been yes. developed there. And it just, wow, Kellogg, just a lot of stuff. You know how they say that um, the necessity is the mother of invention? Mm-hmm. Well, so was insanity in a way. Oh, um, Kellogg had some cutting, really state of the art, cutting edge technologies that he developed while he was there. I mentioned the rowing machine. He also um, popularized sitz baths. Um, he had hydrotherapies that included everything from um, bathing in carbonated water to hot and cold water blast to the body, um, colonics. Uh, he had, if you've ever seen one of those machines that has a belt that goes around your waist. Yes. That and shakes, it shakes you. you. That is. Oh, that was his dude. That is John Harvey Kellogg. <laughs> so all, all that old footage was, was because of him. Yes. The, the old footage of the. The bigger folks like shaking, shaking. and stuff. He and believed in that, you know, mm-hmm. um, movement. He believed that, the, you know, movement was very critical to, you know, the body's health and maintaining health in the body. Oh, so, so exercise machines bull. like your mechanical bull, your <laughs> rowing machine. Many of his inventions like weren't just in the sand. They were on the Titanic. Um, 
the president actually had J. Harvey Kellogg's um, exercise equipment in the White House. Hmm. Um, the King of England, so Queen Elizabeth's father, King George, had um, what is a light bath. It was called the, um, I can't remember the name of the light bath that, that he had, um, but essentially what it is. Is it like light therapy? It's light therapy. It looks like a cage, and I'll put a picture of it up on the website, a link to that up on the website, but it looks like a cage that goes around your neck. And on the inside are several light bulbs, incandescent light bulbs. Wow. And you would sit in there in, in underwear so that your body would be exposed to as much light as possible. Oh my goodness. He believes, and it's hot, of course, after a while you're going to heat up, but your head is sticking out. And I used to see these things on things like I Love Lucy and things. I was like, what is this? And we oh, don't have right. things like this anyway. You, you, have you seen something like yes. that before? That's who invented that. No way. And the King of England bought that from John Harvey Kellogg so that he could get as much light exposure as possible. And it's interesting because now we have those therapies for people that have things like seasonal affective disorder. Mm, yes. People yes. who are low on vitamin D. John Harvey Kellogg. Wow. And if you are <laughs> in, actually, that would be another stop that you would, if you're interested in seeing some of the other inventions that John Harvey Kellogg actually uh, created for health and wellness as a part of his uh, biologic living, um, and I'll go into that some more a little later, system, you can visit um, the Dr. John J.H. Kellogg Discovery Center, which is right there in Battle Creek, Michigan. And it has, you know, what would be prototypes of his inventions. Now, one of the things that he didn't do and he wasn't really rigorous at was um, patenting his inventions. Mm, okay. So, like, they were free. Um, but it looks like an antique gem. And people can go in and, and take a look at it. Um, okay. Did a lot of people steal ideas from him? Did well, you know? it's kind of interesting because you can say yes and no. Because he okay. also co-opted some other people's, other people's inventions, inventions oh, that's, okay. and All right. decided. Well. But yeah, like like I said, President Coolidge had his mechanical horse, which is the precursor of the mechanical bull, you know. So his... His inventions got out there, mm -hmm. um, but they were innovative. Like one of the more twisted ones I'll explain later. Okay. Um, because, oh, wow. yeah, he, he's a really, um, he's a profoundly wacky guy. Okay. Innovative right. and, and wacky. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm staying tuned. I hope you guys are too, listeners. Yes. Um, join us after a word from our sponsors. Parlay Magazine keeps us informed on hip-hop, soul, and R&B, along with its celebrity shenanigans, MC surprises, and details on what you need to follow right now. Follow Parlay Magazine on Facebook and Twitter, and visit them at ParleyMag.com, the voice of urban entertainment. Thank you for joining us on uh, this episode of Wandering Blurs podcast, where we're visiting... Um, Battle Creek, Michigan, and discovering a little bit about the impact of the Battle Creek Sanitarium and uh, its director, J. Harvey Kellogg. Uh, so life at the San was 
luxurious and, well, it was different. Um, the Sand was a state-of-the-art health spa, and it operated at its height from 1890 to 1928. It sported black and pink gold-veined marble walls in the common areas, lavish oriental rugs, a 60-by-40-foot domed glass-ceilinged lobby with palms and 20-foot-tall banana and citrus trees, a fountain waterfall, and a fish pond in the lobby. Now, there was also a 1,500-square-foot red-tiled sun garden above the dining room on the roof. The building also had an indoor and outdoor swimming pools and tennis courts. It had billiard rooms. It had bowling alleys, billiard rooms, several kitchens, and what was once Michigan's largest laundry. Yes. What? Okay. It was huge. The facility could accommodate more than 1,250 guests at a time and 1,800 staff members. Now, nurses and support staff were offered room and board for the first year of work and the privilege of working with Dr. John Harvey Kellogg in lieu of money. So that first year you worked there, you just did it for the honor of working with him in room and board. Okay. And yeah. so that's where the huge laundry came in. Okay. Laundry and the for grounds. For everyone. Okay. So you had to have oh. the grounds that would take care of the staff that lived on, on site there. Okay. Um, the 400-acre grounds hosted the facilities well. They had a water softening treatment pro, uh, plant, uh, several cabin, cabins, a creamery, orchards, a power plant, and gardens. Now, I want you to think about this. I said a power plant. In 1903, here in New York City, on, what, Madison? um, Yes, I believe it was Madison. You had the first internal house lighting, 1903. The this Sanit- is like 1850s, right? 18- right. This is 1890s oh, that this came into being. So they were some of the first people to even have something like this, period. Like you came into a lighted hotel. The hmm. first hotel with like suites that had bathrooms in it, private bathrooms, Waldorf Astoria. And electrical lighting, that was slowly, that was a slow transition. So this was way ahead of it, its time. Hmm. Um, the guests at the Sands, the Sand, they were actually given special treatment too. When you came into the Sand, each person was given a physical exam when they checked in. Stool samples were taken, urine samples, your tongue was inspected. Yes. <laughs> in fact, I'll tell you what, there's a, um, have you ever seen the Road to Wellville? No. The Road to Wellville is actually a parody of life at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. It's historical fiction. However, what's fictional about it is the couple. All those other elements (laughs) of that movie. Is real? They're real. What is the movie called again? It's called The Road to Wellville, and it featured Matthew Broderick. Okay. As the main character, a guy named Mr. Lightbody, and they show him going into his entry exam, he's asked to squat behind a screen so that Dr. Kellogg can ins- inspect his stool. 
And and Jay Harvey Kellogg, just as is depicted in the movie, was known to brag about the quality of his stools and how his stools were a reflection of the health of his body. Like, I'll get more into that later. That gets into the purient aspect of the show. Okay. And I'll need to give, like, parents a nice little disclaimer that it's going to get real. Um <laughs> So we just need to let you know that little bit. But back to Life of the Sand. Now, after all this was done, each each person, each visitor was given a specialized, customized diet. Men and women were housed in separate towers of the, of the sand. Men were expected to wear nothing but loincloth diapers when not in mixed company. Why? Because Dr. Kellogg believes that the body should have maximum exposure to light and fresh air. So the men were expected to expose their bodies to maximum light, maximum air exposure, and even when they weren't exercising outside. So as much air and light as your body could get for as much time as possible. Um, And he actually seldom wore anything but that diaper when he retired to the Miami sand after he left the Battle Creek sand in 1928. Now, this was actually a bone of contention, this this diaper that he would wear, Mm -hmm. because it looked like, let's put it this way. You've seen the cloth, the loincloth that the sumos wear? Yes. It looked a lot like that. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. And he had no compunction about being photographed by the media in his loincloth sans anything else. Mm -hmm. By that time, his brother, W.K. Kellogg, had the Kellogg cereal company, and he felt like his brother being photographed by the media was taking away from, like, the dignity and the name of his Kellogg cereal company. So he actually hired a lawyer to see if he could make his brother put on clothes in public. And the lawyer said, I'm sorry, but you're going to be wasting your money. You can't make your brother put on clothes in public. Yeah. But skipping ahead of ourselves a bit. Wow. Just <laughs> yeah. wow. And the diaper. <laughs> Getting <Right>. back. <laughs> and the diaper. <laughs> Getting back to um, our diaper clad guest at the Battle Creek Sand. Um, most of the group activities at the Sand were set to music. And this included dining and fitness regimens. This is another thing that's depicted in that movie. Um, In fact, Columbia Records actually approached Kellogg about recording his daily exercise regimens. His five-album health ladder was accompanied by a 50-page instruction manual, which included information on Kellogg's biologic living, how to do the exercises, and how to count your calories. That's actually... A really good thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's weird because... Movement, again, with the movement. With the movement in yeah. the air. And so a lot, actually, a lot of his, his inventions were meant to bring fresh air outside. Now, of course, if you're coming to recuperate from, you know, tuberculosis, he would roll you out on the front porch of the sand or he have a window open so that you could get fresh air and, you know, the cure could kill. <laughs> um. Okay, so the big question is, who was John Harvey Kellogg? Um, He was, by all accounts, an interesting man, a visionary, a progressive, an inventor, a eugenicist, a dogmatist, and not to put too fine of a point on it, a first-class kook. Okay. Yeah. 
Genesis, I'm going to explain huh? that. Yeah, a eugenicist. Oh yeah. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. John Harvey Kellogg was one of was the fifth of 17 children. He almost died of tuberculosis as a child, and his parents kept him out of school until he finally convalesced at the age of nine. Now, his parents, being diehard Seventh-day Adventists, believed that the second coming of Christ was close at hand. So formal education of his children, of their children, was a waste of time. As such, Kellogg was pulled back out of school at the age of 11 so he could take a job in his father's broom factory. Now, John and Ellen White, the founders, who are the co-founders of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, they took an interest in young John Harvey Kellogg and offered him an apprenticeship with the health reform newspaper at the age of 12. So the whites took him out of the broom factory. They encouraged John Harvey's parents to allow him to continue his education. And he made up for lost time out of the classroom very fast. Um, By the age of 16, he was teaching in Hastings, Michigan, under the whites' tutelage. And with a $1,000 loan, John Harvey went on to earn a medical degree from NYU's program at Bellevue Hospital. Now, a year after completing his doctorate at, at Bellevue, John Harvey came back to the Western Health Reform Institute to assume the role of director, which he maintained until his death in 1943. Yes. Now... During his tenure at the Western Health Reform Institute, what he would do would change the face of American life. He was a five foot four charismatic man who walked around the grounds of the sand dressed from head to toe in white to exemplify his commitment to clean living. He often had a a cockatoo that would sit on his... um, his shoulder as he walked around the grounds. Um, He also expanded on Ellen White's vision of vegetarianism, hydrotherapy, and exercise as a key to physical and spiritual health. Kellogg incorporated a rigorous electrotherapy and and uh, phototherapies as well as heat and cold therapies. Now, during his time at the... Battle Creek Sand, he actually performed 22,000 operations. Now, at this point, we have to kind of let people know. Um, If you've got younger listeners, you might want to, I don't know, tune out for about three or four minutes because, like we said before, it's about to get real. Um, There is some purient and sexual content that's coming up. Um, I'm ready. You ready? <laughs> All right. Unfortunately, John Harvey Kellogg adopted um, some and advanced some of Sylvester Graham's philosophies on sensual and venal excess. Um, Sylvester Graham was a predecessor in health reform and vegetarianism from England. And he also believed that venal excesses, things like hot baths and soft beds for men was a gateway to sin and disease in the body. So um, Soft beds. Soft beds, yes. And excess baths. And excess baths. Okay. So he created Graham flour to help with cleaning out the body. Um, 
and cleaning out desire. So essentially, um, <laughs> John Harvey Kellogg created the Graham Cracker in honor of Graham. Oh, right. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. As as a, a part of his battle uh, against sensual pleasure, um, he did. He believed that hot baths, soft beds, salt, sugar, and spices excited the sexual urges and should be avoided at all costs. But doesn't it have spices and sugar? Okay. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. minimal. Like. Think about that stuff. It turns the paste in your mouth. Yeah, true. It's not necessarily all that exciting. Very true. Um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Kellogg believed that sex was a uh, sewer drain of the body. And that's a direct quote. And that masturbation was the, quote, silent killer of the night. Um. <laughs> Yes. Um, he often boasted about his chaste marriage to his wife, Ella Eaton. In fact, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg drafted his book, Plain Facts for the Old and Young, on his honeymoon. Ninety-seven pages of that tome were directed to his personal war on masturbation, which included deterrents like circumcision on boys without anesthetics, application of carbolic acid to girls' clitorises, genital cages and hand binding for children, surgical application of sutures attaching the foreskin to the glands of the penis so that like if you were aroused, it would be very painful. So he's essentially creating artificial phimosis, which is where the head of the penis is fused to the foreskin. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. John Harvey Kellogg took his battle against what he called the solitary vice very seriously, as he thought it caused epilepsy, uterine cancer, blindness, acne, eating disorders, physical infirmity, and mental illness. Okay. So being being constipated and horny could drive you crazy, essentially. Mm. Like mentally ill crazy, not cuckoo wacky cuckoo like him. His remedy for this particular condition included... Daily colonics and enemas, nut consumption, six to eight glasses of water a day, and a high fiber diet. Wait a minute. Um, so the six to eight glass recommendation of water, that's from Kellogg. Yeah, that's okay. him. Because and, and before, also the high fiber diet. Yeah, to high poop, fiber. Poop a lot. Mm-hmm. And nut eating. And nut eating too. That yeah. is encouraged. Source as well. of source of uh, protein for those vegetarians. And he really believed in vegetarian. This is true. This is all about keeping your bowels clean. Like yeah. he liked to brag about clean bowels. Hmm. Yeah, he yeah. had some problems. <laughs> he had some problems. We don't know what they were exactly, but um, essentially, um, one of the things that he prescribed. Uh, was water enemas are colonics followed by yogurt enemas. And the machine is actually a liter. They have that in that that discovery center. So you had a liter of water flushed after by a liter of yogurt. And there is a photo that I will also link to one of the Battle Creek pictures. All of the bowel irrigation processes processes were done in the bottom of the men and women's um, towers of the the sanitarium so in the basement he would evacuate the bowels um oh yeah and there are pictures of men standing outside like lined up standing outside of of toilet stalls i did say it was going to get real right 
Mm-hmm. Yes. He believed that the yogurt enemas would replace the protobiotics lost during the water colonics. Um, so he not only believed in warm and cold water and yogurt enemas, but he also believed, advocated daily glycerin, olive, and paraffin oil em- uh, enemas. Now, what the paraffin oil enema would do was wash away all of the fat-soluble vitamin A, D, and K out of the bowels, out of the lower intestines, which would leave the patients vulnerable to things like infertility, clotting disorders, osteomalacia, hemorrhoids, and anal leakage, which in a way kind of, you know, achieved his ultimate aim of turning people off because most people aren't really turned on by anal leakage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, oily anal leakage is not a big turn on. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Not to mention there was another thing that he, he, another machine that he created that was a catheter that would go into the urethra of a man's penis. It would flush it with water and then send a slight electrical shock through the, the urethra to help with the urge to masturbate and or have sex, which he believed was dangerous, which is why he kept a chaste marital bed. I wonder if there's any kind of role play, like sexual role play that people do where someone is like, I'm going to be Dr. Kellogg. You're a naughty boy. I'm going to teach you a lesson. You button up that shirt. You button it up high. You've been very naughty today. You eat your cornflakes. I saw you get hard. You eat your cornflakes and you take your enemas. And it's funny that you mention this because some historians have speculated that Kellogg's obsession with bowels may have stemmed from clismophilia, which is an erotic stimulation from enemas, and that a childhood bout of measles actually left him impotent, hence the war on sex. Wow. Yes. Oh, my. Right. Okay, that's deep. Yes. And like altering the lives of so many other people because you yourself cannot actually have. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cannot actually have sex. Um, But once again, that's kind of speculation. Okay. Because we can't know for sure. Yeah. He didn't discuss that. He just liked to talk about his bowels and his actual, he spent a lot of time talking about his scatological functions. Um, What's interesting about this, and this kind of leads to the cornflake wars. Cornflakes (laughs) were developed as a front line to his war on the solitary vice. They were designed as a part of keeping your bowels clean. It was a meat substitute. It was originally not meant to be eaten even with milk. You were supposed to be able to take the cornflakes and go and have this nice flaky, you know, frontline food that was in the battle to keep you from arousal and and masturbation. Um, The Kellogg brothers actually parted ways because well the first thing was is they had a hard time getting cornflakes to flake um it was a batch that actually went bad and was about to mold and uh his brother um wk kellogg who worked with him but he didn't treat wk very well 
you know, was his younger brother. Um, there were seven years between the two of them. And um, when W.K. first came in, he came in as a money manager, but he was a businessman. He kind of he was able to take classes and W.K. would John Harvey would have W.K. do things like take notes as he exercised around the grounds. He would even have his brother take notes while he was in the restroom. The W.K. Kellogg felt was very, very um, humiliating. Hmm. Let's give them let's give them a nickname so we can. So one of them is John Harvey. Okay. And that's the elder. The, the doctor. And Keith, W. Keith Kellogg. So uh-huh. when you would see Kellogg cornflakes on the box, what mm-hmm. ended up happening is Keith discovered the flaking. And right. he said this would be really good yeah. if we could put some sugar on it. Yeah. It's still edible. Da, 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 da. Right. Yeah. It, it tastes so better. the doctor, like, so they'll say doctor, the doctor and the, doctor. the yeah. businessman. or The doctor, you know, was like, no, these must be sugar-free, don't pollute people's bodies with it, um, and you should only be able to have these at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. His brother was like, no, everybody should be able to buy these. So the two of them actually really parted ways over the sugar thing, and they didn't speak for several years. Um, That was like the final... That was the final nail in the coffin of their relationship. Uh, They did finally talk you know about um business matters but this was later in life um but let's get back to john harvey kellogg um who was the manager of the sanitarium he actually ended up adopting and fostering several children and this is once again he was a eugenicist and i'm going to tell you how he becomes a eugenicist but many of the children that he fostered and adopted and it was in excess of of 30? Wow. Yes. It was more than 30. And he would take them from low-income places around the country in an effort to show how biologic living could change the life of anyone, including these very low-income children. He had black children. He had white children. He even had black and white people working and visiting the sanitarium. So... It's kind of odd to think about a eugenicist doing this, but he didn't become a eugenicist until after he adopted um, his son, George Kellogg. George Kellogg was the son of a Chicago prostitute. John Harvey Kellogg sweeps in and adopts him, but he was the one child that never could get with the the program of biologic living. He wanted meat. He was very vocal about it. He was not neat. He didn't live in the same kind of way that the rest of the Kellogg household lived. And so instead of Dr. Kellogg saying, okay, I have a rebellious child, what he decided was there were certain people that just would never make fit offspring. Um, and no matter what you did to try and elevate them to another status, they couldn't get there because their stock was inferior. And he also wrote about this. Actually, you can go and Google some of his writings on eugenics. Um, we'll he, make a link to that. Yeah, we're going to put one of the a few of those of his Google books. And what he started was uh, um, it was an organization called the Race Betterment Society. And this was all predicated on his failed relationship with this little boy, George, who actually, you know, you would think maybe he was a little black boy. No, he wasn't a black boy. He was a little white boy. 
Um, but he just decided that certain people shouldn't have children. Poor people shouldn't have children. Uh, immigrants, certain immigrants shouldn't have children. But the interesting thing is, um, is it Booker T. Washington that had the Atlanta Compromise conversation? I believe it was Booker T. I should have, I should have that, but I believe it was Booker T. Washington. He actually invited to come speak at the SAN because he believed that, you know, we should have this separate and equal. There was a very, very popular conversation about the Atlanta Compromise. Um, so, yeah, interesting things. He also, among his famous, he had people that were famous from all over the world come to the SAN. Um, Another eugenicist, J.C. Penney, was there. Uh, Amelia Earhart was a visitor. Um, Warren G. Harding was a visitor. Uh, the Rockefellers were there. Um, also, Sojourner Truth, who we'll hear more about, was a visitor to the sand. She came there uh, about six six months before she died. She was having ulcers. She had ulcers in her legs because of um, what they suspect was diabetes. And... Kellogg actually did skin grafts on her legs with his own skin. Yes. Wow. And sent her home um, after little convalescent time, and she never recovered. But it's kind of interesting to hear about a eugenicist who would give a black woman his skin. Um. So now well, we're... Well, maybe that's better than the other way around or something. I don't... I don't know. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm. I was still kind of flabbergasted to read about that. Like I said, this was a man of many conflicting and odd, odd, wackadoo theories and everything. But he, like I said, he was cutting edge. He invented a lot of surgical tools that we now use, um, and surgeries. But getting on with the serial war at. One time, Battle Creek was home to over 150 cereal companies. And one of the visitors to the sand was um, Post, C.W. Post. He came there because he had dyspepsia. It was 1903, and he had been eating cereal. So interesting thing, um, Kellogg tried to institute shredded wheat, which was actually formulated in Colorado, to the sand as a part of his biologic living, I looked at it as a meat substitute, and the people at the sand would not eat it. They would not eat shredded reed. Post came there eating grape nuts because they there was an article in the newspaper about grape nuts being a remedy for ap, uh, appendicitis. So instead of having a, an appendectomy, you'd go and eat grape l- nuts long enough, and it would cure you of your appendicitis, and we know that didn't work. Mm-hmm. So... Post decides as a businessman, he's going to take a couple of these cereal um, recipes that he's eaten at the sand and give them to people under the name Postum. And he starts the Postum company. Uh, Of course, this creates a lot of friction because he does it right under Kellogg's nose there in Battle Creek, Michigan. And he then goes back to the sand as a foil to Post. I mean, as a foil to John Harvey Kellogg. Kellogg walking around in all white. He shows up in all black. He's smoking. He blows smoke in Kellogg's face. And he was like, he whispers and says it loud enough for people to hear, dog. And in retort, John Harvey Kellogg says, well, you know what, uh, 
<laughs> dogs do the post. Oh, I oh my gosh. You know minute, what yeah. dogs do to pose. Nice. And he walked away. So it's really interesting. He used to like to, you know, because biologic living and, and vegetarianism and the discipline of the same was very difficult. They had a place called the um, the Purple Onion, which served steak, <laughs> porterhouse steak. And the people that were visiting there would sneak away and go and eat steak at this <laughs> onion place, the Purple Onion place. And... <laughs> Kellogg would go out there often and send spies so he could see which guests were going. Oh, okay. And then he would have them take, um, he would have them take a steak and he would take a slide and show the guest in the dining room what bacteria was growing on the steaks that was oh rotting in their bowels. Um, he also would leave that steak out for overnight the next day so they could see what kind of uh basically fauna grew in addition to the flora and bacteria on that that raw meat to try and impress upon them the dangers of eating flesh and putting flesh in your body. Yes. So as you can see, Kellogg left an enduring legacy on American health care. Um, uh, health food, vegetarianism, um, any number of things. Um, much of, if you've ever used a foot massager or a mo massaging chair or a tent system, that's all Kellogg. Post, for his part, left an enduring legacy as well. Um, he had an arboretum, which is just gorgeous, acres and acres of trees um, and carved sculptures are in the Post Arboretum, which you can see coming into town. That's another place that you may be willing to or may be interested in visiting on your visit to um, Battle Creek. I was extremely impressed with it. Uh, they also have W. Keith Kellogg, the younger Kellogg, established with his cereal money uh, foundation to take care of underprivileged children. Um and that organization was one of the biggest philanthropies for children in the United States until the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation came about. So they definitely left their stamps, whereas on, they left their stamps not only on Battle Creek, but on America as a whole. Um, John Harvey Kellogg, the elder Kellogg, uh, really doesn't, isn't as remembered um, for many of the contributions that he made because of his eccentricities. His brother, because that cereal company took off, he is remembered. Um, and because of his philanthropies, he's remembered. And he actually eventually went blind in later life. And just before he died, well, just before his brother died, he wrote a letter apologizing for some of the things that he did to his younger brother. And um, Keith Kellogg's, W.K. Kellogg, his assistants never read it to him because they didn't want to upset him. They didn't want him to, like, they didn't want him to sacrifice any of his dignity by going and, and giving his brother the time of day. So they made that decision for him until about a few weeks before he died. Kind of deep and interesting. Mm.
But as you can see, much of the first day in um, Battle Creek is actually um, taken up with the um, Battle Creek Sanitarium and those things that were uh, both John Harvey and W. Keith Kellogg's contribution to Battle Creek and to the United States uh, as a whole, the American healthcare as a whole. But for our next episode, we'll be delving a little bit into uh, the darker side, so to speak, the more pigmented side, let's put it that way. Okay. Of Battle Creek. Um, not only the health reformers, but the freedom fighters. I will say that there's one, um, and I'm, we'll give some information about this, but the one enduring legacy, Serial Town USA, closed last year. But that was a big interactive serial um, museum that was there. That closed last year, but once a year they have a uh, festival in the spring that is the largest breakfast table in the world, and they invite people to come and eat cereals. Oh, my gosh. I'm so there next year. Yeah. It should be fun. That's just one of the fun events. There are two other events that might draw you to Battle Creek, but more about that next time. Okay. On Wandering Birds. So... For Wandering Blurs, I'm Mickey Tate. And I'm Mickey Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Please join us next time for our second installment of uh, Wandering Blurs, where we'll be headed back to Battle Creek, Michigan. This is Wandering Blurs, brought to you by the Gifted Sounds Network, produced by uh, our lovely producer, Lance. and A.K.A. Lance Solo. Lance Solo. A.K.A. Papa Lance. Papa Lentz. A.K.A. the man who makes the world spin. <laughs> he makes our world go round and yeah, round. pretty much. <laughs> so for all of you viewers who were waiting with bated breath for um, our next our, our next installment, we thank you for joining us again. Yes, and thank you. We hope that you join us for our next installation in the new year.